I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, welcome to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. Today we're talking about one of the oldest and most iconic monuments in Britain and probably the world. Have you guessed yet? Yes, it's Stonehenge. Around 5,000 years ago, ancient people began constructing this Neolithic monument and it's been a mystery ever since. Why did they build it? How did they do it? Whoever it was didn't leave a written record and few clues for us to piece together this ancient puzzle. But there are clues, including two very big ones which we will be particularly talking about as we unwrap the story of the world's most famous stone circle which certainly never stops surprising me and of course it's not just me who's here melissa my producer hi mate hi tony when we were talking about making your podcast stonehenge came up really soon why did you want to make a program about stonehenge stonehenge is absolutely my favorite piece of archaeology in the entire country i've had so many adventures at Stonehenge and one of my guests today is the person who's had two astronomically amazing finds to do with Stonehenge about four years apart which have transformed our understanding of it and made it ten times more real to me. I've always been fond of it because my relatives, one the whole half of my family, come from Wiltshire. And so when I went down there, it was always there, like a sort of piece of set in the background. So it's always been in my mind for a long time. How many times have you dug there or filmed there or both? Well, I've never dug there because you just ain't allowed to anymore. There was one iconic dig which Mike was part of, which he'll tell you about. But one of the glories of it, and indeed the mystery of it, is that you can't dig there because it's so highly protected. How many times have I been there? I think I've made at least three different documentaries about it and of course I've been there at sunrise freezing cold but in awe as the sun gradually came up and yes it was a clear day and I could see its relationship with the stones and oh it's as lovely as people always say it is. I can't wait. I wanted to do this with mates rather than having it like sort of very formal and very straight and very serious. So I couldn't resist getting my old buddy Raksha Dave in. Uh, Raksha was uh, trained at UCL, weren't you? Yes. Uh, in archaeology. She's dug all over the flipping shop. All over the place. Yeah, not just in the UK, around the world as well. So. And you're passionate about archaeology in the community, yeah? Really passionate about that and also telling people about what archaeologists do. People think of 
the traditional archaeologists being in the field, getting their knees muddy, which is, I suppose, where I is my speciality, what I used to do. But, it, you know, how archaeology can be multifaceted and there's many, many different things that you can do. So it's about getting people involved, really. And for 10 years, Rakshar worked with me on Time Team. And from the moment she did her first programme, I knew, I told you, didn't I, that you would have the potential of uh, big jobs on television. Yeah, you did. And uh, in some respects, um, you're a bit like my TV dad. (laughs) (laughs) Never thought I'd say that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And now, uh, I think you're probably on the telly as a presenter for more history and archaeology programmes than virtually anybody else in the country. Do you think? I think so. Oh, wow, Okay, And now I'll take that. I'll take that from TV dad. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember when you first saw Stonehenge? Do you know what? I think it was in a car on the A303 because it is quite weird because you kind of drive up. There's this there's this like roundabout that you're not expecting. And then all of a sudden it's just there and it just appears in front of you. And it's almost like a shock, really, isn't it? You're just like, oh, my gosh, it's Stonehenge. Is it really Stonehenge? But I didn't really fully actually really fully appreciate it until I stood in the middle of the stones as the sun was rising and I was really privileged to go filming there one day and just appreciate that kind of sense of awe and it is a magical experience. This programme in particular I'm making because of uh, Professor Mike Parker Pearson, most archaeologists are a little bit reticent about what they do. Like if they find something which is straight and is obviously a bleeding wall, they'll say, it's probably a linear feature. Mike has never been like that. (laughs) Mike finds stuff, he tells us he's found it, he says what he thinks it is. Normally, other archaeologists throw complete shit at him for about (laughs) four or five years until begrudgingly they have to recognise that, yes, he was right. And that's continually what's happened to you, hasn't it, in your exploration of Stonehenge over the last, what, 20 years? Yeah, it is. It's almost two decades now. Of course, I went there a very long time ago. I was one year old when my parents took me. And I won't say just how long ago it was, but it's the last time they were actually putting up some of the fallen stones. My dad had no interest in archaeology whatsoever. He was an engineer. He went there to see the crane that was doing the <laughs> erection. So, <laughs> uh, but yes, in later years as a student, I went many times. And of course, even in the festival years, uh, when they had the free festivals in the 70s, and it was it was completely wild. Did you go wild there as a hippie? West. I was too young to be a hippie, too old to be a punk. So. <laughs> That's what they all say, it, though, yes, right? It, it, in between the generations on that one. But, uh, yes, a, a, a great experience to go and see all of that. And, of course, that, that got closed down. And for the last decades of the 20th century, no research was really allowed on Stonehenge because uh, they hadn't written up all the excavations from the 20th century. And we were just so lucky to put in an application to dig uh, beginning in, what, 2004. And uh, it just opened everything up. And I think that was just the amazing thing, to discover how much more there was. But you didn't open everything up. You weren't allowed to open well, no, everything exactly. up. Well, we, it was, we it was really tiny, quite discreet tiny, what you did. Tiny, it? tiny percentage. Of course, you know, it's a big World Heritage Site. Mm. And we were just looking at particular targets in that landscape so you know not quite keyhole excavations big enough to see what we were what we were looking at and you know that really paid dividends were you allowed to do any as it were virgin archaeology in other words digging where nobody had ever dug before or is all you were allowed to do and i know english heritage yes. fans of this approach is all you were allowed to do redig places that earlier archaeologists yeah. had done no we, we were very lucky that we could actually dig new areas and it was important to do that because if we wanted to get dating evidence that had not been obtained from the previous excavations, there wasn't any point looking there because it had all been cleaned out. So we did need new areas and they, they completely revolutionised everything we knew about the chronology, not so much as Stonehenge, but the whole landscape around it and to discover different bits that were connected within that landscape that hadn't been grasped before. Before we look at the actual henge closely, Mm. what do we know, Rakshar, about the people who built it? 
It is the biggest burial site in a Neolithic burial site in the UK. That's what we know for sure. The people who built it, well, at that time, people from the continent are migrating to Britain in waves. It's the ancient DNA studies that have revolutionised our understanding of past populations. And Stonehenge is built by the descendants of Neolithic farmers whose origins were in Anatolia, so that's modern-day Turkey, and the Aegean. Uh, and we know that those farmers colonised Europe in two directions, one lot through the Mediterranean and the other lot up through the Danube. Uh, and it's the Mediterranean line that ultimately colonise Britain. And they, they do that around 6,000 years ago. So Stonehenge is built by them a 1,000 years later. So you know, if you want to sort of characterise them, they are... Uh, Mediterranean, they would have been dark-skinned people who were putting up uh, not just the megaliths of Stonehenge, but the entire western seaboard of the Atlantic. One thing that strikes me about it is it's so big and obviously so complex. Somebody must have had some time on their hands to be able to invest so much time in creating it. Uh, yes, it's it's not the biggest monument in Britain from that time. The one that took the most effort is actually Silbury Hill at Avebury, the largest artificial mound in Europe. Which isn't too far uh, away, is no, it? No, it's, it's, what, 20 miles to the north. And to, to do that, you would have need well, it's been worked out, it's about 7 million person hours of labour. Stonehenge is half that, even though it, it requires bringing stones from a long way away, shaping them, lifting stones up as lintels on top of others. So, it, But it's still a huge amount of work, and to do that, you've got to have a large population gathered from an extensive hinterland. And you know, we can't say exactly how far they're coming from, but we know from isotope analysis of the animals that they were bringing to the Stonehenge landscape that they're coming from many different parts of Britain. I know there's been a big debate as far as the pyramids are concerned about mm. whether they, that was voluntary labour yes. or hired labour or slave yeah. labour. What, what well, did the you theories? see that recent cache of papyri they found on the coast of the, Dead, of the Red Sea, which actually sets out one of the labour teams, their work programme you know, and their, their, their expenses and the rest of it. And they are free, free men. Uh, with a boss, and they're actually contracted to do a certain series of jobs on the pyramid. Absolutely extraordinary find. Wow. I mean, I'm not an Egyptologist, but I was just blown away by that for obvious reasons. Same, that's the that same on the Giza Plateau. You mm. have lots of workmen's houses. Well, I say, work, I say workmen, it should actually be work people, because I do think that it was whole families actually mm. putting these huge monuments together. And uh, as Mike said, they are paid people it is their job to do that and even when you go to the valley of the kings at the beginning of at the front of the tombs you get these workmen's huts so employing you know hundreds of people to do these like very very kind of uh, massive feats of engineering and, and making beautiful monuments as well there were weren't there wonderful theories before we knew that these people came from anatolia about who had actually made it in the first place yeah, but it, and it, th I think the interesting thing is, is when we think about the the migration from Anatolia, we've got to when we look at the 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 genetic results, it's not something that just happens in one migration. It's waves upon waves of people going to and from the continent, and also the exchange of ideas as well. I'm a little bit disappointed. I hoped that you were going to tell me that Stonehenge was created by Merlin wrestling mm. with a giant, which mm. was a big one, wasn't it? Aliens for a long yes. time. Oh, for a long time. Yes, I don't aliens. get many emails about aliens and Stonehenge anymore. There was a time when I had some brilliant correspondence, and I'll never forget one from a North American farmer who explained that uh, what we had was the, uh, the scaffolding for a damaged star starfighter and that from the shape of Stonehenge we could actually work out not just what type of starfighter it was but where the actual uh, impact had been that it was that they were trying to mend. Wow. So, uh, I think that's that a done deal. I think we end the programme that. That's done. <laughs> but you know what? We used to get lots of letters like that for Time Team as well, didn't we? Uh, yes, Commending yes. here, there's, mm. there, there's an ancient alien landing pad somewhere. You know? Oh, the other big thing about Stonehenge, which people always used to say, is that it was the Druids. But that's mm. not quite the right time, is it? No, no, not at all. And uh, as with quite a lot of history, actually, and kind of perceived history, a lot of it are kind of Victorian constructs. Yes, it starts in the 17th century with 
John Aubrey, after whom the Aubrey holes at Stonehenge are named, and it's followed up by William Stukeley about 60 years later. And yeah, you can see why they came to that conclusion, because there was no such thing as British prehistory then. Mm. All they had as their guide was Julius Caesar's book on the Gallic Wars and his invasions of Britain, and he writes about Druids, so they just assumed that A, Stonehenge must be a temple, and B, if it's a temple, it must have had priests. So who are the priests in the time of Caesar? Because that's prehistory, as far as they're concerned, and it's Druids. I'm glad you made that point, because I think so often we think that people uh, in the Middle Ages and the Tudor period, where they were looking at the landscape around them, must have been nitwits because they came up with such ridiculous <laughs> notions. But like you say, they were starting from scratch mm. and could only work with the evidence that mm. they had. So in a way, they mm. were the forebears of everything that's mm. being done right now. Yeah, they? and, and you know, to, to their credit, they were the first generations not to trust the passed-down fables about Merlin and giants, which comes from Geoffrey of Monmouth writing in the 12th century. So this is the first moment at which they're saying, well, hang on a moment, do we believe all the stories we've been told, the myths? Shall we? And they start questioning, and of course, out of that comes the science, ultimately, of archaeology. So... We've got these stones. How many are they, Mike? <laughs> I you weren't <laughs> going to ask me that one. <laughs> well, you'd have thought, you know, the country's leading expert on Stonehenge, how many stones are there? And the guy panics and nearly runs out the room. That's right. Well, <laughs> over a hundred. Over yeah, I love that. We had an archaeological quiz many years ago, and that was one of the questions, and I didn't know it then. <laughs> all, right. Here's, all right, here's more of a primary school question, <laughs> Professor. How many big stones are there. Okay, well, we've got, we've got uh, what would have been an original 30 in the outer Sarsen circle. Yeah. They're not all there. Uh, there's, there's half a dozen that are missing. And then there should have been 30 lintels on, top, on the top of them, but there's only half a dozen of them still remaining. And then we've got 15 in the form of um, five trilithons. So that's two uprights, of, and uh, the lintel on top of those. And then you're getting into the stones around the periphery. So there are, there's, a, there's a, a slaughter stone, so, so called. It's not actually a slaughter stone, it's just a stone that's fallen over and got a flat surface. That once had two accompaniments, and then there were four stones that are called the station stones around the periphery. Two of those have gone. And then on top of that, we've got all the Welsh stones, which, of course, come from Priscelli, and we think that, that, that there would have been 80 of those, so equivalent to the original 80 sarsens. And then, Let me just stop oh, you for a minute, because yes. you've, you, you've used this word a couple of times. What is a sarsen? Right. Sarsen is the local uh, silcrete, so it's a kind of very hard sandstone. So if you think sandstone and concrete, that's silcrete. So it, it's the kind of thing that really takes a lot of bashing, as uh, the souvenir hunters discovered in the last few <laughs> centuries when they used to pop up there. Everybody did it. Uh, that you'd, you'd actually buy a hammer in the local town and go there and chip a bit off. No! And uh, there, there's, there's some <laughs> wonderful tales. You've got uh, somebody bashing away when the owner turns up... Uh, Lord Antrobus, he said, excuse me, that dude, why are you doing that? Well, you know, I've just come to do a, you know, take a souvenir. But I own this. Oh, really? But, but I'm going to carry on, he says. Uh, and then we have somebody railing against it, saying this is a terrible thing to do. But I bought my hammer and I chipped off a stone myself. So you know, it, it really has suffered. And there's been a tremendous laser scan study, which shows just how much has been nibbled away by those souvenir hunters in the last 300 years. Looking around those stones, and indeed looking around at that landscape, one thing that strikes me immediately is there aren't any other stones lying around. Uh, if, if I was going to build a stone monument, it wouldn't be the place I would choose to go to because there would seem to be such a shortage of raw materials. Mm -hmm. We looked into this in detail because we found uh, two stones. There's the cuckoo stone uh, up 
uh, beside uh, Woodhenge. And then across the river, there's a stone at Bulford. Uh, they're local stones, so, so they actually formed in situ about 50 million years ago. We think that's about how old sarsen stones are. It was thanks to a geological study by uh, my colleague David Nash, who was able to show that all but two of them have come from 15 miles away to the north, not far from Avebury, in fact. And it's there that they, you would have found them in profusion. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The crucial thing, it's the only stone circle where they've gone a long way to bring the stones. And, of course, if you think 15 miles is far, the Welsh stones come from the Priscelli Hills 170 miles as the crow flies, which is just mind-boggling. So we are talking about the kind of thing that we discussed in primary school, which is how the heck how did do they? people who didn't have big vehicles transport the stone? Well, how, what do people think about how stone was transported in the prehistoric well, times? Well, you've done lots of experiments, haven't you, Mike? Mm, With well, ropes and lots of yeah, students. students <laughs> yes. yes. So, in fact, it, it was one of my former postgrad students, uh, uh, Barney Harris, who uh, lassoed all the students into <laughs> a chain gang and uh, we, we chose a London park outside the Institute of Archaeology and he got them dragging huge concrete blocks. And the secret is that it's not what everybody's thought, which is rollers. You don't put a stone on rollers because unless they're machine turned to exactly the same diameter, they'll just... Uh, jam up against each other what you're doing is you're sliding the stone and you need to put it on a wooden sledge so that it's mm. the sledge that is making contact not with the ground and the starsons would have been so heavy they would have just sunk into the turf you've got to have a railway so you're putting logs down which are facing the direction of movement and then you're pulling you may think of clever things to do to lubricate and uh, minimize the friction we have pictures from egypt of people doing this with huge statues and there are um, uh, there are guys standing at the front with big jars of some kind of liquid presumably oil and pouring that on we know that you can do this perfectly well just with grass because it is full of silica and that actually minimizes the friction so you, you can even just put grass there or simply pull on grass if you've got uh, along with with your rails so uh, yeah i think we, we realize that humans can do that but we've also just started to find the first evidence of cattle traction in the neolithic so we can tell from the the development of of the bones uh, at particular joints. So it sounds, it sounds like a silly question. What sort of cattle would they have been? I mean, are mm, they oxen? oxen. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you, you could actually let them bear the load. And uh, In the Stone Age. Mm, mm. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to Tony Robinson's Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson, and my special guests this week, archaeologists and fellow hengers, Mike Parker-Pearson and Raksha Dave. I mean, obviously, you know, people don't think that in the Neolithic people had roads as such, but obviously there are networks of trackways. Would they yeah. have employed those as well? Yeah, I think we often forget that not only is there a thousand years of activity, movement, trade, but also even before the farmers arrived, you've got 
hunter-gatherer populations who are creating pathways through the forest. So you know, some of these pathways could be extremely ancient and well-used and well-established. You know, well and I, I think we often forget that. We think it's some kind of complete uh, jungle hell uh, just with, hills with, uh, and grass e everywhere. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, it's very interesting you, you talking about those tracks because I've been mm. involved in, in an experiment with Viking longships mm. where they had to move from one small river to the next and they used exactly the same technology and that's thousands of years later, mm. the mm. little track and the lubrication, mm. and exactly the same problems we came up against mm. pulling that. Before we go on to the other stones, the mystery of the Welsh stones, can we just look for a bit about why Stonehenge is where it is, given mm. that it doesn't seem the most practical place for it to be. Exactly. You're a long way from... Suppose you've got the A3 <laughs> long way. Well, you have, yeah. that's right, as, as an American tourist pointed out to me, you know, where's, where's the road there before Stonehenge? <laughs> so that's why they put it there. Uh, yes, I think it's been a, you know, a really interesting thing to look at the Stonehenge landscape because there's so much going on in it. You know, we just think of that monument, but it's stuffed full of sites of all periods, many of them even older than Stonehenge. And what is intriguing is that uh, Stonehenge is right on the edge of what is the densest concentration of Neolithic burial mounds anywhere in Britain. So, yeah, they're literally within uh, you know, a stone's throw of where Stonehenge is now. And... Um, that suggests there's something that was a draw for people to bring their dead to celebrate or worship the ancestors. You know, when you look at the distribution of long barrows elsewhere in other parts of Salisbury Plain, they're all nicely evenly spaced. So one tomb per local community would seem to fit that. Stonehenge is different. They're all trying to get in to this particular spot. And that tells me that long before Stonehenge, and this could be 600 years earlier, there's something about that place which is remarkably important to their spiritual and religious sense of who they are identity in place yeah raksha's nodding furiously yeah. it do, even now it does have that feeling and i, I i'm yeah. split down the middle half of me thinks oh i'm just being romantic because <laughs> i know it's stonehenge and the other half mm. of me is thinking oh no if stonehenge wasn't here you'd just have to build it yeah mm. i mean i the, my favorite thing is when I'm driving down the A303 is making my kids check the barrows, you know, can you count the barrows? Let's mm. go back. And you can just see these mounds popping up. There's so many of them. It is jam-packed mm. as mm. some kind of like mm. important special ceremonial place for people. Mm. What was really exciting, and Tony was there, was we uh, were excavating in front of Stonehenge, uh, digging this avenue, which of course has long been known about hundreds of years, but realising that there was another structure underneath the avenue on the same alignment, which of course is the midwinter sunset, midsummer sunrise in the opposite direction. And uh, it was that discovery that it hadn't been made by people. It was actually a natural feature formed in periglacial conditions in a previous ice age, that, that you have a pair of ridges with these deep fissures running parallel with, within those ridges, and Stonehenge is stuck right on the end of it. There's no way that's coincidental. So that they've, they've placed their very important cremation cemetery, because that's indeed how it starts, on this particular natural feature. So they're kind of referencing the significance of the solstice and the relationship of the sun with the land itself and I, I think that's really you know that's really amazing because that is the reason I think that Stonehenge as a landscape of monuments why more than any other Neolithic complex anywhere in Britain or Ireland has got so many solstice aligned monuments it's the spirit of the place I think that makes Stonehenge so special. And do you think that's as near as we're going to get to understanding what it was for i think that's the start <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I think the second crucial step was made by my malagasy colleague ramili sonina who just came out with a simple observation it's for the ancestors and of course he's he's drawing on his own experience 
of uh, of uh, megalith building in Madagascar, which is where I met him, and we were studying together. And uh, the more we thought about that, we realised that actually this helped to explain an awful lot about why people were building houses out of timber and tombs and standing stones out, out of stone, that um, realising that this, yeah, this is a, a crucial distinction in their lives because of the permanence of stone and indeed chalk and other uh, imperishable materials, whereas they for, reserved for themselves the things that, that, that were perishable. And that takes us on to the whole business of why stone from somewhere else becomes so important. Because if you're going to haul 80 stones, some of them weighing the best part of three and a half tons, 170 miles plus, You've so these are the a, other stones. These, these are, aren't these the, are the No, these are the the, the blue the blue stones, and we're now pretty sure that they are there first, along with a few sarsens, I have to say, but they're the majority at the beginning. So to do that, they've got to be super important. How did we know that they were from Wales? Because our brilliant and clever geologists have been able not only to identify that they come from a particular area of Wales, and in fact that was first achieved exactly a hundred years ago this year 1923 but the team i've been working with uh, more recently have actually been able to identify four of the actual outcrops that these stones were taken and from this is your first big dramatic find isn't it <laughs> you found in the ground mm. the shadow mm. as it were of where the stones that uh, that we know of as Wiltshire's glorious Stonehenge, 170 miles away. Mm. It's it's a complicated story because we have the quarries, we've dug the quarries, we've found the quarrying tools. My favourite finds are the actual wedges, the stone wedges that they were hammering into the joints on these outcrops so that these natural pillars, they could just pull them off the outcrop and, and then ship them out. The, the, the question now is, have we found the place where they actually put them up in Wales first? We know that we've got a, a particular area where all these stones seem to have come from. We thought we had, and it, we realised we did indeed have a dismantled stone circle of the right date, but it was never finished. They didn't put up anything like enough stones to take to Stonehenge. And the type of stone they left behind is a different sort of dolerite, technical term, to the dolerite at Stonehenge. Can I unpack some mm. of what you've mm. said then? Is everybody absolutely convinced that what Mike found was the quarry where those stones came from? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For, it's really interesting because then it just makes archaeologists like myself think, wow, so this quarry, the stones from that quarry must be special, must be a, a special place. And also for people to source that particular stone from that place would have been known in the Neolithic for miles you know and that again is quite mind-boggling that this knowledge these stones this known air place has you know they're really sought out uh, after and precious it was only recently that i i think really under your tutelage mike that i began to realize that they'd been put up before they came to Stonehenge, which mm. makes an awful lot of sense. <laughs> I had thought, and I think most people probably listening to this podcast thought that they, for some reason, they were mined and then immediately just mm. taken to, yeah. to Wiltshire. Yeah. But, yeah, if they were, as it were, some kind of cathedral which was mm. special and for some reason mm. sure. it had to be pulled down and transported yeah. elsewhere. It makes well, we, we, we think there's probably going to be a variety of monuments in Priscelli. Because, of course, we mustn't forget that as well as Stonehenge, we also found Blue Stonehenge down by the River Avon. And you were there again for that discovery. So realising that Stonehenge at the beginning, at least, is at least two monuments, which are later 
uh, you know, coalesced into one. So I, I hope I think everybody else be... is finding this as exciting as I do. <laughs> as you said that, I'm kind of bouncing up and down in my seat. Carry on. Uh, and I, I think there's going to be at least a couple of monuments in Wales that, that, that they're dismantling. Whether the one that we found called Wine Mound is uh, part of the construction or something that happens alongside, uh, we're, we're not entirely sure. But there I, has I been think... a, quite an energised debate well, about indeed. that, hasn't there? Exactly. And, and I, I think the evidence now is if they did supply any stones, it's a handful. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're on the hunt to see if there's somewhere else uh, within the area of the quarries that might have actually been where these were first put up. And then the next question is, how the hell did they get them to Wiltshire? Mm. Well, uh, back in the 20th century, seems a long time ago now, <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, the, the main consensus was that they went by sea so that you uh, dragged them off the hillside down to Milford Haven and it was thought then the, that the altar stone at Stonehenge, which is a great big sandstone monolith, uh, would actually have been picked up at that point and then they'd all have rafted them up the Bristol Channel, uh, up the Bristol Avon and then uh, heaved them across the land for the last bit. Uh, the only problem with that idea is that the quarries... Uh, uh, really are on the north side of the Priscelli Hills, so you have to go over the mountain before you even start. And we know that the altar stone is not from Milford Haven. We don't know where it's from, and at the moment the geologists are saying, well, go north, maybe go quite mm. a long way north. So not maybe not even in Wales. But that's work that's actually ongoing right now, and, you know, they should have some results for us in a year's time or so, I hope. I mean, that's, you know, it's utterly plausible because these are the kind of like the, the long themes throughout archaeology anyway, is that people, there's lots of reuse and recycling. Mm. You know, you don't, you know, reinvent the wheel. You go and, you know, if something is going to be dismantled, you would, you know, reuse the material from there to put in somewhere else because it obviously takes a lot of effort. There's lots of technology, there's lots of people and manpower yeah. that go into building these things. Yeah. Okay, so I've, I feel like we're just about halfway there now. We know that we all these stones have got there. The big question is really what sort of function they performed and that was Mike's second big discovery which I'm not going to tell you about right now because I tell you why all this time all we've talked about is a load of great big stones but the reality is this is archaeology there was a, a lot of other stuff that was found there as well I didn't tell you I was going to do this but my friend Alison Sheridan, she's from the Museums of Scotland where, and she's in charge of the small finds. Again, knows more about little prehistoric things than anyone else I know. Uh, uh, Melissa, have we got, have we got Alison let's, up yet? Let's see if we can get her. Okay. Let's see if we can get Alison. Can we get her? <laughs> Whoa, yes, I think we can. Hooray, Alison's here. Hooray. Alison, Hello. Hello, Tony. Hello, Mike. Hello, Russia. <laughs> <laughs> One of the happiest archaeologists I know. Alison, tell us about the other stuff that was found at Stonehenge and, and, and close by and what that tells you about the kind of people who were involved in its creation and use. Well, in the earliest phase of Stonehenge, you've got amazing stuff, including a beautiful little mace head that's made of Louisian gneiss. And gneiss is one of the oldest rocks in the world and it forms in the Isle of Lewis and in, in adjacent. Oh, is that that? Is, is, is nice spelt G yes. <laughs> N E I S yeah. S? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, what, what, what precisely is it? Oh, it's, it's one of the oldest rocks in the entire world, although obviously the people who, who used it wouldn't have realized it. But it's also a very beautiful rock. And so this gives us a connection with Scotland. And it's not the only connection that we have between Stonehenge and the area around Stonehenge and Scotland around 3000 BC. Basically, 
an enormous number of very exciting things were happening around 3000 BC. So if you were to go up to Orkney, to somewhere like the Ness of Brodga, you would find a very thriving a ceremonial centre where you've got Maze Howe Passage Tomb, you've got the Stones of Stenness, uh, standing stones with a, a bank and a ditch around them. You have midwinter solstice ceremonies. Does this ring a bell with Stonehenge? Sounds familiar. Yeah. Although whether they were doing that at the, at the time of the earliest Stonehenge, we're not sure. And they, they had also invented for themselves a brand new style of pottery up in Orkney. I mean, essentially what you're dealing with is very, very ambitious cowboys who were in a very fertile land and they were able to um, use their surplus from their agricultural activities to build monuments and to travel long distances. So these guys up in Orkney had gone to the Boyne Valley in Ireland. They'd seen Newgrange, Nowth and Douth, those amazing huge passage tombs. They thought, we, we, want, we want a bit of this here in Orkney. They therefore built Maze Howe to echo Newgrange. And we also know that they were fantastically successful and people came from far and wide to visit and to take part in their midwinter solstice ceremonies. And we also know that they then took away the idea of using the kind of pottery that they were using up in Orkney. We call it grooved ware. And your mate, Phil Harding, he dug some grooved ware at Bulford, yeah, military camp, very close to Stonehenge, you could lose that pottery in Orkney. I mean, it's just phenomenal. So between that and the little mace head, it's not just that. On King Barrow Ridge, again, about 400 metres from Stonehenge, they found little chalk plaques which are decorated with geometric designs which exactly match what you get in Orkney. So if you go to the Ness of Brogga or if you go to, to Scarabray, you can see this very distinctive set of designs. A question that is buzzing through my head when you talk about this kind of communication is, what would the weather have been like? Because when we talk about those places that you're describing now, they're pretty tough and bleak <laughs> most of the time. They're pretty bleak right now. But no, it would have been slight, slight, slightly warmer than today. So it, it would have been okay. But we know that people could have made a good good life. And we also know that they were skilled at sailing. And obviously, it wasn't everybody who was able, you know, who, who had the privilege to travel long distances, but some people did. And we even know that some people from Orkney must have gone to the continent from where they, they brought back Orkney voles, would you believe? Um, these are tiny little creatures. And um, th th genetically, the only place where these Orkney voles could have come to Orkney from is continental Europe which is, is a pretty mind-blowing thing to, to find. So essentially, some people were very sophisticated. They were able to travel long distances, and this was all part of their power play. So their authority was based on the fact that they were able to go long distances and, and sort of discover esoteric things. They would participate in ceremonies elsewhere. They would bring that knowledge back home, and they would wow the locals by you know, making monuments that are unlike anything that the locals had ever seen. And we think that this was, you know, this was happening in, in various different directions. So people from the Stonehenge area must have known about what was happening in Orkney and must have gone up there, which is pretty mind-blowing, I think. That's extraordinary, isn't it? So you've got these people coming from Anatolia originally. They, they've come through to Western Europe. You've got people in Ireland making these incredibly sophisticated monuments. You've got people, again, incredibly sophisticated in the north of Scotland producing this fantastic stuff then we whiz right down to Wiltshire and you've got this huge monument or series of monuments there are there other places and peoples filling in those gaps oh absolutely and and I, I think the, the great danger and, and a lot of people that complain that all of archaeologists attention are focus on either Stonehenge or Orkney and that's no longer true because everywhere else in between has got something very very fascinating the whole of Britain and Ireland is peppered with Neolithic ceremonial complexes. At the last count, I managed to, to add up at least 60 of them. So it's realising that you only need to go 
every 15 to 20 miles and you'll bump into another of them. So the country is covered in these, these complexes and we're just beginning to find out not how many there are but also how complex they are, yes. how many different monuments each one of them might, might, uh, might have inside of it. So, you know, there are curses and hinges and tombs and... and uh, and, st and stone circles and so on. When so, did it all go wrong? When did all that disappear? Well, it's a very slow, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a slow burnout. Uh, there's a big change when those beaker people turn up. Mm. And uh, again... Th those pesky beaker, yeah, beaker so, people, hey, Alison. These are, <laughs> yes, these are people from Germany? Yeah. Well, uh, Alison and I have been lucky enough to work with the, the geneticists on this. And uh, they're... Uh, ancestry goes right back to the Pontic Steppe. So that's the region that is now Ukraine and uh, Western Russia, so between the Black Sea and the Caspian. And uh, the Beaker people are ultimate descendants of, of those. And we call them the Beaker people just because, because they, they, produce they produce those very nice little beakers, beakers that go in the burials yeah. with them. And uh, uh, their genetic impact on Britain is enormous, mm -hmm. shockingly so for us as archaeologists. We thought it was going to be a gradual sort of melding, but it's a 90% replacement of the population within six generations. Yeah. So it's really quite extraordinary, but they still maintain the traditions of the country that they've come into. So they're still building hedges, they're still building stone circles, uh, they start putting up round barrows so, so that they're continuing some of the traditions but they're all small. The one exception is Silbury Hill that we mentioned earlier which is built right in that initial settlement period um, and my uh, friends uh, uh, Josh Pollard and Mark Gillings have been doing a project there. I wonder whether that is actually one of the last holdouts of the Neolithic population. We've got some very unusual grooved ware coming out of there, which is hard to parallel anywhere else, possibly because it's so very, very late. And um, uh, it's there that they build this mega monument, uh, possibly to, to no great effect, because everything kind of falls apart for them. But you know, the, the Beaker takeover, if you like, uh, it sees certain continuities, but not at that level of super monument construction. I think the four of us are going to have to write the Netflix series, The Last Stand of the Stone Age People. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about your first big discovery, which was where the stones came from in Wales. Your second one was about four or five years later. And that was when another road was being built and you just had the opportunity to get well, in there for a few it, months? It, it, the road had already been built in the ah, 60s. Yeah. And uh, we were able to follow up on the results of those excavations because they had found timber circles inside the Great Henge of Darrington Walls. This is about two and a half miles so, from uh, Stonehenge? Uh, that's, yeah, no, no uh, not even two miles. Oh. And... Um, it's there that underneath the banks of the Henge, we found the floors of houses. Houses lived in by people using grooved ware. You know, you're looking at something that's almost like a town, which in Britain, apart from uh, Nessa Brodger up in Scotland that uh, Alison's been talking about, we just don't have in late Neolithic Britain. And yet there's a place like Darrington Walls. I think you're. I think you're understating it. I mean, it, it was. <laughs> he looked shocked that he should ever have understated anything. Uh, this was so big, wasn't it? Mm. And the more you dug, the more complex it appeared to be. Uh, there were pits which you were finding, mm. which were bringing up the most remarkable stuff. Mm. You found a huge henge. I think I'm right in saying it was bigger than Stonehenge, wasn't it? The timber circles. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so there's there's the southern circle which had been found in the road works and we went back to that and opened up a bit more of it to get an idea of the full plan uh, and to discover that this had its uh, a main entrance facing mid-winter sunrise uh, and the avenue out of it is oriented towards midsummer sunset so it's, it's the opposite of the two 
uh, directions that are key at Stonehenge. And we discovered that they finished off, before they built the Henge, putting up a massive timber circle, over 400 metres in diameter. And um, realising that if we had been alive then, looking at the stones of Stonehenge and Blue Stonehenge, and then looking at the timber complex of Darrington Walls, with all of its houses and its big timber monuments, that would have looked far more impressive. Than Stonehenge. Than Stonehenge. And, of course, we don't see that anymore, because you know, the timber's long since gone. Have so you any idea what these people were doing there? Having a very good time. <laughs> <laughs> Are you being serious? I am being totally serious. What, what, uh, how do you dig a very good time? <laughs> you discover the vast amounts of debris that they have discarded from eating as much as possible. So they're, they're dining on barbecued and boiled pork and beef. Yeah, they're, they're, they're smashing all their pots, they're discarding the animal bones, kind of Neolithic Henry VIII style. Yeah, we, we, we were finding lots of, lots of joints of meat that they clearly hadn't bothered to you know, get all of the nourishment out that they could have done. And it's, it's realising that also they don't have the proper equipment for a Neolithic settlement. They haven't brought or not making all the tools they should be making. What they're discarding is pins, pins that were presumably their dress pins and uh, a, a tiny proportion of the actual tools like these scrapers that you would have used for, for the proper work on settlements. Is this the Neolithic Glastonbury are we talking about? Somewhere between Glastonbury and Pontins, I suspect. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, but of course, yeah, they're there to do a serious job, I think. Which is what? Which is build that stone monument down the road, Stonehenge. And uh, uh, yeah, they're also there to put up the big timber circles too. Uh, yes, it, it's a major, major location in that landscape. It would have been the alternative focus to Stonehenge, but it's the focus where the people are. Alison, have you seen any of the finds that have come from uh, Darrington? Oh, yes, and there's loads and loads and loads of pottery, vast amounts. And, and again, you can see connections between there and other parts of Britain. So the style of pottery, which is called Dorrington Wall style, you can find it up as far as Angus in the east of Scotland. So again, communities were absolutely interlinked at that time. And Mike, you used to say that, that one of the, the, the houses at Dorrington Walls were similar in design to Scarborough Bray. Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, one of the interesting things that... Uh we know about uh, Scarra Bray because it's built in stone. But the thing is that we have the absolute layout of the interior. And we were excavating one of our houses, the, big, the biggest house at Darrington Walls. And I realised that you could take the plan of that house and overlay it on the interior plan of the main house at Scarra Bray. <laughs> And they are exactly the same shape wow. and size, the rounded corners, the hearth in the middle, the box beds on either side, the dresser at the end, you know, the shelving unit. Yeah. And, and we've got this extraordinary similarity between these two very distant sites. I mean, they're 700 miles apart. So, uh, you know, I, I do wonder if there is a special link between the two. Yeah, I, would just, I was actually breathing in to ask... Alison, just that it 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 feels, doesn't it, from all the evidence that you've presented, that it's more than just kind of vaguely the same sort of people. Yes, absolutely. I I, I think we we underestimate the distances that people could travel in those days and why they chose to travel those distances. In society in those days, it was a mark of honour and prestige for, let us say, well, young men in particular, to go and do long distance journeys and then to come back and tell their folks all about it. And you, the Amesbury Archer, who is the poster boy for Beaker People in Britain, buried near to Stonehenge, overlooking Stonehenge, we know that he had been born somewhere like Switzerland or southern Bavaria. So we were a bit disappointed yeah. to discover that he's only one of we, two we were, yeah. in our, <laughs> yeah. our big study of yeah. Beaker, three, over 300 <laughs> Beaker people that, that, that are long distance yeah. uh, travellers from but it's a, what you're describing sounds mm. very yes. much like the 18th century grand tour when yeah. the, 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 the sons <laughs> yes, of the aristocrats yes, were sent yes. out to Europe to mm. admire and bring back and transform our, archi well, our architecture. Yeah, absolutely. 
I think we're nearly there now, but there is this one more part of the puzzle that mm. sticks in my mind incredibly mm. because it was you who showed it to me. And that is that there is a pathway down to the river at Durrington mm. to the river Avon. Avon. And if you travel along the Avon, you can get off and there is another pathway heading up towards Stonehenge. That's right, yes. So uh, we, we wanted to find out at Darrington Walls whether it was connected to the river by an avenue, a ceremonial avenue, in the same way that we long knew that Stonehenge had an avenue leading towards the river. We didn't know at that point if that avenue actually reached the river, which is why we wanted to dig there. And what we found was, the answer was, yes, it did. And there's a completely unknown former stone circle there turned into a henge. So that, yeah, that, that was good. But I'm, I really enjoyed finding the avenue at Darrington Walls because uh, this actually, uh, thanks to Clive Ruggles, our archaeoastronomer, he was able to say, this is aligned upslope towards midsummer sunset. So it gave us a, a brand new a solstice alignment we simply didn't know about and it's a dramatic structure it's even wider than the Stonehenge Avenue 30 meters across two low banks on either side and a proper rammed flint surface so yeah the nearest thing to a Neolithic road that I've ever seen and it's packed with with the debris of, of daily life all that feasting just got sort of in in amongst the, the cobbles as it were and more than that they also set a couple of buildings on the, the ridges on either side, uh, which were not proper houses because they'd failed to put in a wall on the downward side facing the river. But realising that you know, they got fireplaces but no beds, so these were somewhere where you could stand out of the Neolithic rain and watch whatever was going on up and down that avenue, which culminated not in a gentle ramp down into the water, but into a vertical three-metre deep drop in, into the river. So realising, we, we don't know what they were doing at that point, we, we haven't you know, we weren't allowed to dig holes in the River Avon. Drain uh, it, come <laughs> on, archaeology is more important. <laughs> So, uh, yes, but it, it gave us the, the idea that maybe there was a connection between the two halves of the complex, that you've got the place where people are hanging out and partying and where they've got their houses and their timber circles, and then downstream you pick up at the beginning of that avenue with Blue Stonehenge and the avenue that takes you up to Stonehenge, uh, you know, that place that is not where the living hang out but where other forces, ancestors and spirits uh, where they reside. So it's like the journey from the living to the dead. I think so, yes. I, I, yeah, and, and water's always so important all around the world as the conduit, the medium by which people cross the, you know, the liminal space uh, into the afterworld. I just find all of that absolutely fascinating. I hope our listeners find it as fascinating as I do. If you don't, you're a bit silly. But there's one final question I want to ask all three of you, and it's the final question that I ask everybody in these podcasts. Start with you, Mike. Do you have a cunning plan for our future understanding of Stonehenge? I guess I do. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it is. <laughs> well, I, I think the answer lies in Priscelli and Wales, because if we're right that that's where they bring the stones from, first of all, before the Sarsons. We know there's something very special going on there. It's a major monument complex in its own right. But what is it that's going on there that creates this extraordinary monument to, to be built? Raksha, you're, you're a people person. What yeah. would you like to see happen to Stonehenge? As archaeology goes on, technology moves on. And we can then find out more information by using all of this amazing techie geeky stuff that comes up. And I just think that we're just going to find out so much more in the future with the data that we already have and the, the finds that Alison's already made these comparisons to Scotland. I mean, that's that. I think that's the exciting future for Stonehenge for me is finding out more information and making those connections, not just with what's going on in Britain, but elsewhere. 
Alison, do you want everything to be shipped up to Scotland so you can have a look at it? Is that your plan? Uh, yeah, you can have our finds. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, want, I want Mike to continue doing his amazing work. And I would like archaeologists in all parts of Britain to understand that period better. You know, between about 3000 and about, let's say, 2200 BC, there's lots more to be found out. I'm working with a whole load of chums to try and improve our understanding of groovedware pottery you know exactly what type of it was made precisely when and so the kind of geeky nerdy type stuff that all helps to build this bigger bigger picture and I think it's the most exciting time if you think our understanding of Stonehenge has been transformed largely thanks to Mike's work over the last few years crikey you know I'm looking forward to the next 20 years what more can we find out it'd be great and let's hope we're alive to see yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> a final message really for people who haven't seen Stonehenge or the Nessa Brodka we are incredibly privileged in this country to have stuff that is so old this is far older than the pyramids and it is so cool and so accessible come up to Wiltshire please go up to the north of Scotland when you can have a look and don't take anything away with you Raksha, Mike, Alison, thanks a lot. Absolutely fascinating. Thanks for listening. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on Twitter at Tony underscore Robinson and you can follow all our podcast news on Twitter and Instagram at Cunning Cod Past. Cunning Cod... I still can't say it! Start again. Cunning Cast Pod. <laughs> that gives you some idea of quite how efficient I am as a presenter. And please, please, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. I'm Tony Robinson. This is my cunning cast, produced by Melissa Fitzgerald, and it's a Zinc Media production. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.